Morning everyone, good to see you this morning. My name's Marshall, I'm one of the pastors here and it's my pleasure um, to, be, to be sharing with you this morning. Well tomorrow is September 11th. It will be the 22nd anniversary of what has become known as 911, 9-11, the terrorist attack on the Twin Towers in New York. 19 terrorists hijacked four planes. Two of them crashed into the uh, Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. One of them crashed into the Pentagon, one of them into an open paddock. Almost 3,000 lives were lost. But the psychological impact that shook the whole world went way beyond just the innocent lives that were taken that day. Because the richest, most protected country in the world was found to be exposed and vulnerable to attack from within. Suddenly, not only American society, but our society uh, was under threat. Security was suddenly a big issue. Our strongest protectors had been shown up to be inadequate. We could no longer rely on them for security. And of course we know, if you're old enough to remember back then, the response of governments all around the world, including our own, was to ramp up security on the borders, at airports, etc. Um, things like random strip searches became standard, things that were unheard of before 2001. 9-11 rocked the world because it threatened something that we can't live without, a sense of security. The idea that we can rely on at least a basic level of stability tomorrow and next week that enables us to eat and have shelter and have a level of normality. And on a personal level, we all need security too, don't we? That's why saving superannuation is such a big deal for us. We feel the need to have a secure, at least partly predictable and stable future. As human beings, we have a core instinct to seek security and stability for the present and the future. And that was behind Israel's motivation in seeking a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Because they looked at the nations around them and they saw powerful kings providing security, stability predictability, protection for their people. And Israel wanted that too. But here's the thing. Israel already had a king, a much more powerful king. But he was invisible and he was holy. And Israel didn't want God as their king. They rejected Samuel and his sons, but the one they were really rejecting was God. The result? God gives the people what they want. He gives them a king, but this king comes with a high price tag. Rejecting God, the true king, always comes at a high cost. And that's the price that every one of us must pay. Security just for this world comes with a price tag that none of us wants to pay that none of us 
can afford. So that's where we're going today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Father, we thank you that um, this word that you speak about Israel is also a word to us because we all have the same desires and yearning for security that Israel had. And Father, we also have a true king, that you are our true king. Father, we pray that you would speak to us today, that you would challenge us, that you would remind us of your kingship and that you would give us a desire to find security only in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got three points today. The first point is that the people demand a king. The chapter begins by Samuel telling us, uh, so, sorry, Samuel, by, by Samuel becoming old. And we're told that he set his sons up as judges. But it turns out that his sons were a very bad choice. Have a look in verse 3. His sons did not follow his ways, Samuel's ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Now at this point I wonder if Samuel, getting old and, and his sons, reminds you of another story that we've held, heard elsewhere in 1 Samuel. It sounds like a replay of Eli, right? Remember Eli? He's the priest who was the spiritual leader of Israel back in chapter 1. But remember that when Eli and his sons... When, sorry, when Eli was old, his sons were also wicked and they also perverted justice. The same expression. Now there's a significant difference though between Samuel and Eli. Because we're told that Eli was complicit in the sins of his sons. He actually benefited from the way, remember, he used to rob the people going to the temple, take their meat, which was, uh, which, which was um, not allowed. Eli benefited from that because he ate the meat. And God condemned Eli. Now there's no suggestion of God condemning Samuel. There's no suggestion that he shared in the sins of his sons. He's not condemned by God. But still Samuel's sons being evil rub some of the shine of Samuel and his leadership. After all, he's the one who appointed his sons. At the very least, it's pretty bad judgment on Samuel's part. And I'm going to suggest that the take-home message is that even the best of human leaders, and Samuel is right up there with the best, even the best leaders of God's people are still flawed. They're still very human. And it points to someone who, to lead us who doesn't have the weaknesses of flesh and blood. It points to our need for our king who is beyond a human king. But more of that later. So as a result of Samuel's sons being wicked, the people decide they don't like the idea of them taking over from Samuel. So the elders front up to Samuel. This is what they say in verse 5. 
They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Now Samuel didn't like what he was hearing. When they said, give us a king to lead us, verse 6, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. In the original Hebrew, it's much stronger than that. It literally says these words were evil in the eyes of Samuel. The words of the people were evil. Why were they evil? It's unlikely that Samuel was just had hurt feelings at this point because his own sons were being rejected. Samuel was a godly man. He knew what was going on. He must have known that his boys were behaving badly. No, Samuel was reacting against something else. He was reacting against the request for a king. Now, having a king wasn't necessarily a bad thing in itself. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people that when they decide they they want a king, this is what God says through Moses. Deuteronomy 17. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. But then in that passage in Deuteronomy, there's a whole chunk of verses that qualifies that by saying, you need to make sure that the king you choose isn't like the kings of the nations around you. And you need to be sure as a nation that you don't become like the nations around you as a result of the king that you choose. Look again at verse 5. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. That's what the people ask for. Such as all the other nations have. They wanted to be just like everyone else. They had been chosen by God to be distinct. God had made a covenant with them to be his people, to be set apart, to be holy, to be totally different to the nations. Saying they wanted to be just like the nations was like giving God the middle finger. They were rejecting God's plan for them. They were rejecting God as the true king. And that's our second point. Listen to what God says about it. Verse 7, And the Lord told Samuel, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Having a human king wasn't necessarily bad, but it was if it was replacing God. And that's exactly what was going on here. And this isn't a new thing for Israel. God makes it clear in in verse 8 there that from the very beginning, from day one that he brought them out of Egypt, they have forsaken him and served other gods. Towards the end of the chapter, the people repeat their demand to Samuel for a king. And they reveal here their true motives for wanting a king. Have a look with me at 
uh, verse 19. We want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. We've already seen that Israel wants to be like everyone else. But here's the reason why they want to be like everyone else. They want a human king to protect them and fight their battles for them. They want a king for their security. Now, we need to remember here what's happened in 1 Samuel so far. Back in chapter 4, Israel relied on the ark for their security when they went into battle against the Philistines. Remember that story? They take it into battle. They treated the ark like a magic talisman. They arrogantly assumed that just because they had the ark with them, that God, of course, would be with them and give them victory. Well, he wasn't. He wasn't with them. The ark was captured. Israel were routed. Fast forward to chapter 7. Israel face attack again from the Philistines. But this time they humble themselves. They see their need for God. They cry out to God for help. And remember what happened? The author just says that the Lord thundered and threw the Philistines into confusion and they were defeated. It was all God's work. He was Israel's protection and security. But now, in the very next chapter, chapter 8, Israel decides it's a good idea to look to a human king for their protection and security, despite having seen that clearly supernatural deliverance of God back in chapter 7. How stupid, we may think. And it was. It was spectacularly stupid. But friends, aren't we like that too? I can count the number of times... Sorry, I can't count the number of times I've seen God rescue me. Uh, like there, there was a time that I thought it seemed a good idea to cross a flooded creek in our clapped out old bomb of a car uh, soon after we were married up near Barrington Tops. Uh, I ignored all the warnings, you know, about driving into floodwaters. Uh, she'll be right, I said to Julie. Sure enough, the car stalls halfway through the creek. We were in very real danger of being washed away. I prayed a desperate prayer and miraculously the car started again and we got out. But then the next time I needed rescuing from something, my first instinct is to do what? Pray knowing that it's only God who can deliver me? No! It's to run around like a headless chook and fix it myself instead of desperately crying out to God. And I suspect I'm not alone here. I suspect you may be the same. Because as sinful humans, we grasp onto what's physical, what we can see, what's tangibly there right in front of us. And we find it desperately hard to turn to God in prayer, to rely on the God we can't see for our protection and security in the midst of a crisis that we can very much see that is very much there. What the Israelites did in demanding a king was really stupid 
but it was really human. And I suspect we would have cried out for a king as well. Well, despite Israel um, rejecting God by asking for a king, God tells Samuel to listen to the people and give them what they want. But he also tells Samuel to warn the people about what they were getting in for because he wanted to know that a king comes with a high price tag. Comes with a high price tag. That's our third point. And then in verses 10 to 18, he gives a long list of how Israel would pay for having a king. He'll take your sons and conscript them to be in the army. He'll take them and make them work his fields and grow his crops. He'll take your daughters and they will be taken to be perfumers and bakers. He'll take away your fields and vineyards. The word take, take, take is repeated over and over. It's the same thing that Samuel's sons did at the beginning of the chapter. They, they took taking from the people. And then finally in verse 17, when that day comes, verse 18, sorry, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you that day. No? Sorry, I think I skipped forward. Never mind. Says, uh, verse 17 says, He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become your slaves. The king will take, take, take. Then at the end of the day, you will become his slaves. God's own people who God rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery, are now choosing to become slaves once again. And when they realise what they've got themselves in for, now we come to verse 18, when they realise when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. When the people should have listened to Samuel, they refused. And now God will not listen to them. It's a terrifying prospect to have God not listen. And the pattern that we see here worked out in 1 Samuel 8 is also a warning to us. It's not always a good thing when God gives us what we ask for. We see that in Paul's letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says this, verse 18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then he goes on to explain that God's wrath, his anger, is worked out in the way that God gives people up to their evil desires. In other words, he gives them what they want. He gives them what they ask for. And it's uh, explained in verse 24. Their God, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies to one another. He's describing the process of people making sinful choices and wanting to disobey God in sexual relationships, but not just in sex, but in other ways as well. And so God let them have what they wanted. 
we choose to disobey God. And so sometimes God lets us have a disobedient lifestyle. We want to have a king, so God gives us a king. And friends, if God lets us keep going on that trajectory, if he doesn't intervene, we keep running headlong into destruction. We choose, and this is all of us, every single person, to reject God and to choose to live without him and to die without him. And friends, that's what hell is. It's an eternity without God and consequently without all that is good in the world. And that's something that we all, left to our own devices, we all freely choose. And if God gave us our desires, and if he didn't intervene, that's where we all would be headed. When we reject our true king, we end up back in slavery, in bondage to our sin, and unable to escape. But friends, God mercifully hasn't just left us to destroy ourselves. Many hundreds of years later, after this story in 1 Samuel 8, Israel asked for a king. Sorry, many hundreds of years after they asked for a king here, a later version of Israel also wanted a king. Didn't ask for it directly, but they wanted another leader to come along and kick out the Roman authorities who were enslaving their land. Someone who claimed to be a king ended up being arrested and condemned as a criminal. The Roman governor, who had the power of life, life and death over this man, questioned this prisoner. Pilate was his name, and he asked the man if he was a king. John chapter 18, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus is a king, but not a king of this world. Not a king who beats up his enemies with a sword. Not the king that Israel wanted. Not the king that we wanted. But he is the king that we need. And he came even when we didn't ask for him. He's not a king who came to take. This king came to give. But he is a king who comes with a high price tag. His rule is costly. But the difference with King Jesus is that he paid the price. His reign cost him his life. So that he could buy us back from the stupidity of our own choices. Now to finish off, if you're here today as someone who hasn't yet accepted Jesus as your king, I want to mainly have a, have a word to you. 
and leave you with a challenge. I want, to, I want you to see two things. And let me say, this isn't just me talking and spouting my opinions. All I'm doing is relaying to you the message of the Bible. First thing, if you haven't yet accepted Jesus as your king, that isn't just a neutral position. It's not just that you're following one legitimate path among many, like our culture would would have you think. It's not like choosing one brand of yogurt over another at Woolies. It's actually an act of rebellion against God. Just like the Israelites, it's rejecting the rule of the true king. Now, as I say that, please don't hear me coming from a position of judgment. I'm really not. I'm not saying this from any sense that I'm somehow any better. Because, friends, I'm just like you. And every person here is just like you. We were all living in rebellion against King Jesus. And it needed him to intervene in our lives in a supernatural way to save us, every one of us, from running headlong into destruction. Because the default position of every one of us is rebellion against our king. And friends, that's a very serious thing. Second point. That rebellion carries a high price tag. I mentioned a moment ago that Jesus becoming king came at a cost. He had to pay the price for our rebellion by dying on the cross. He had to pay for our forgiveness. Jesus holds out his hands to us, to you and me, and offers a free pardon for our rebellion. He offers us forgiveness. But you've got to accept that. And you've got to bow your knee to him as king. Jesus paid a high price to carry your rebellion on himself. But that leaves you with a choice. You can accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness, but you can reject it as well. And if you reject it, you choose to pay the price yourself of your own rebellion. And that's a high price tag. It will lead to slavery, being a slave to sin. And ultimately, it will lead to hell. And friends, that's a very high price. That's a price you do not want to pay. But the good news is that Jesus is offering you and each one of us forgiveness right now. All we've got to say is yes to him and accept him as king. And that means saying sorry for our sin, for our rebellion and choosing to live his way. That's what it means to be a Christian. And what I'm going to do now, I'm going to to pray, give you an opportunity to pray a prayer with me to do just that. If you're someone who's never accepted Jesus, perhaps you've been here for a while and you just realise, actually, I've never taken that step. Perhaps you're new and perhaps you've been seeking uh, what the truth is and you realise, yes, I want to accept Jesus. 
this is an opportunity for you to say yes to Jesus. And all you have to do is to pray silently along with me. I'll lead us uh, in prayer. I'll get the band up now, by the way. If the band want to come up. While they do that, just have a quiet think about where you are in relation to Jesus. Have you accepted Jesus? Or is that a step that you need to take? Because that's a step you can take today. I'm going to lead us in prayer now. Let's pray. Dear God, I, I want to accept you as my king. Lord, I realise that I have been living my life my own way and that I have been living in rebellion to you because I have lived my life as king or queen of my own life. God, I'm sorry for that and I want to change. I want to ask for your forgiveness and I want to follow you as my king and I want to trust you for your forgiveness and that you died for me. Please help me to follow you as my king. Amen. Now keep your eyes closed. Bow your your heads, close your eyes. While we're doing that, I want you to raise your hand if you've prayed this prayer for the first time. Um, I'd love to know if you've made that decision so we can help you know what to do after that so we can we can follow up with you so if you prayed that prayer for the first time just quietly raise your hand now thank you you can put your hands down Um, that is a big step that you've taken if you put your hand up you can open your eyes now Uh, and and i want to say that that is the most important step that you've taken Uh, as we begin our life with King Jesus. I'm going to hand over to the band.